the North Koreans said they were going to test it soon. I mean, we, you know, what the North Koreans say and what the North Koreans do, who really knows? Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Ben Pauker, FP's executive editor for The Web, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined by Joel Witt, a senior fellow at the U.S.-Korea Institute at SAIS and a senior research fellow at Columbia University's Weatherhead Institute for East Asian Studies. He is also the founder of 38 North, a platform with focus on North Korea analysis. And joining us from California today are Jeffrey Lewis and Corey Shockey. Jeffrey is an FP columnist, the founding publisher of armscontrolwonk.com, and the host of the Arms Control Wonk podcast. He is also the director of the East Asia Nonproliferation Program at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. And Corey is also an FP columnist and a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. She is the author of the forthcoming book, Safe Passage, The Transition from British to American Hegemony, which will be released in November. ER nerds, we love hearing from you. Have episode ideas or comments? You can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. All right, guys. So recently we've been getting I, – I have been getting a little bit of criticism from our ER nerds that I have, uh, you know, a slightly younger voice than previous hosts. But I am old enough and gray-haired enough to remember the days, I guess – and I'll admit I was young, but when we had to do school drills hiding under the desks – for, you know, the imminent attack of a Soviet nuclear strike. Um, and recently, you know, North Korea is this sort of pantomime state. It's, uh, you know, it's this dangerous rogue nation. But, you know, it's also the subject of hilarious or stupid movies with Seth Rogen and James Franco. Kim Jong-un is mocked and made fun of on, you know, websites around the world and newspapers. But is this really, you know, a, a nation that uh, we should be scared about? I mean, Trump seems to, in his first four months in office, has taken a really hard line and been really adamant that this is a major strategic challenge and threat to the United States. So, Jeff, why don't we start with you? Is this something that uh, we should be hiding under the desks from? Well, I I don't ever want to see you hiding under a desk, Ben. (laughs) Uh, That's where I do my best work. The thing I would say is this. North Korea has nuclear weapons, and when I look at the way that the North Koreans talk about nuclear weapons, I do think that there is some risk that things might go wrong on the peninsula. So it's it's a problem I take seriously. I think you can always do a good job of telling people who are hyperventilating to calm down, and there's definitely a lot of hyperventilating that's going on. But even if you take away that, yeah, I would, I definitely am not super excited about living in a world where North Korea has a, you know, reasonably sized deployed nuclear arsenal. I think that kind of sucks. So tell us about the, you know, the size, or Joel, you know, you're an expert on North Korea. Give us a little bit of a rundown, our, our listeners, on the development of North Korea's nuclear program and its you know, missile testing, which has been ramping up, as Jeff has written about uh, for foreign policy over the past few months. Well, you know, I, I guess I have the, the benefit or the misfortune of having done this for a long time. It's probably over 20 years now. And so I've been watching the steady growth of this program, at least in the past eight years or so. And people are sort of late to the party because I think you could see this was happening 
a number of years ago. And what you're seeing is the gradual growth of a nuclear weapons stockpile, not to a lot of weapons. I mean, even in the worst case scenario, they may reach 100 by 2020, but the gradual growth of a stockpile and also technological improvements, which may eventually lead them to a hydrogen bomb. And on the missile side of things, of course, they've had ballistic missiles for a long time, Soviet model ballistic missiles. And over the past seven or eight years, they've been developing many more models. So unlike a lot of people, it's I don't think this is a recent development. And almost all of the new missile programs we're seeing started eight years ago. We're seeing testing now because they've reached that phase in their development. So it's not all of a sudden they're starting to test them like a lot of people say. So it's becoming a threat. It's uh, a threat certainly to South Korea and Japan. It's been a threat to them for a while, and it's going to continue to grow. Jeff, there's you wrote recently about the the imminent test of North Korea's latest missile, which reputedly has the range to actually hit New York. Um, what's the status on that? Well, I mean, I should start by saying the North Koreans said they were going to test it soon. I mean, we, you know, what the North Koreans say and what the North Koreans do, who really knows? Um, but they seem to be signaling that if this little bit of footsie with Dennis Rodman and 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 whomever doesn't really work out, that that yes, they're ready to go ahead and do that. You know, I think they've got a lot of options for things that they could test. I think most of them probably won't succeed the first time out, but most of us have focused on the the KN-8, which was the the big, ugly missile that the North Koreans have paraded at least three times. Um, you know, the, not to be overly technical, but the, the problem with that missile is we think it's based on uh, the same engine, um, just heavily modified, uh, that's behind this other missile they have called the Musudan. And if you know anything about the Musudan, you know that it explodes. So, <laughs> so one question we have is, are they going to hurry up and try to do something that they've kind of cobbled together um, or, or do they have something that is either ready or under development that's going to be, uh, you know, a, a more serious missile, uh, kind of along the ranges of the, um, or I mean, along the like technological development of the Hwasong 12, which was a, a new missile we saw earlier this year. And and the range is is a concern, right? This is an intercontinental ballistic missile with a range of reputedly up to 10,000 miles in best case scenario. Is that right? Yeah, you know, I, I always have to do kilometers because I just that's how my brain works. But I think with the North Koreans, so said international, that, Jeff. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> well, you know, I like to go to Paris, and you know, things are liters and meters. It's better. Uh, the wine's good. Uh, the North Koreans said Nor New York was ten thousand four hundred kilometers from North Korea, and and then heavily implied that whatever they tested would have that range. Um, we we think that if the KN08 works, which you know is giant, if um, that that should be about the range of that thing. But, uh, you know, your mileage may vary. All right. So it seems like we've got some consensus here that North Korea's nuclear arsenal and capability to, to deliver that is a threat to the United States. And certainly, as Joel said, to to the South Koreans and to Japan, to, you know, the closer states. So, so Corey, why don't you walk us through what Trump has done so far and how it differs from, <laughs> you know, the Obama administration policies. And then later I want you to get to, you know, why the, you and, and the Bush administration never deployed Dennis Rodman as an ambassador back then. <laughs> why did it take so long? <laughs> 
Thank you for that, Ben. I know you're a sports really? fan. I feel like I'm a pretty good policy analyst and planner, but I never thought about weaponizing Dennis Rodman. So, so thank you for expanding my arsenal. <laughs> Uh, So let's see what the Trump administration has done. I think they're – so I do believe they are taking a different policy course than the Obama administration and Bush administration had taken beforehand, uh, in part because the North Koreans have accelerated their testing programs, especially the ballistic missile testing program. My sense is that the admiral commanding – Uh, PACOM, Harry Harris, uh, wanted to draw lots more attention to how fast this program was accelerating and how much more dangerous it was becoming for the United States because they begin to, uh, the North Koreans begin to flirt with ranges that, that put the continental United States in play as a target for them. And the North Koreans are not shy about their enthusiasm for that occasion for that occasion, right? Think about the pictures of the North Korean leader pointing to Colorado Springs on a map, that kind of stuff. So so they're not wrong to think the threat is increasing or accelerating. But what I think the Trump administration has done is draw a lot more attention to it and emphasize military elements of the strategy, right? Moving more assets to the region, talking up American missile intercept capabilities. The National Security Advisor, when challenged about the fact that that, uh, the South Korean capital is still in artillery range of North Korea, no matter what happens in their nuclear missile programs, uh, the National Security Advisor seemed to suggest that uh, we would be r- willing to run much higher risks than in the past with the civilian population of South Korea in order to try and deter North Korea, right? H.R. McMaster said uh, the President of the United States gets t- elected to protect the American people, suggesting that the South Korean people were not our concern. So I think the alliance elements of the strategy are coming under greater pressure. President Trump's aggravating for the South Koreans uh, tweets during their electoral campaign suggesting that South Korea should have to pay for the missile defenses that we were deploying there. And once again, uh, emphasizing that he thinks trade with South Korea is unfair to the United States made a lot of people, and not just in South Korea, really nervous. I have to say, though, the one person I have heard really strongly defend the approach that the Trump administration has taken is former Defense Secretary Bill Perry, who uh, has, has said and written a couple of times that the emphasis on a more militarized approach in Bill Perry's judgment, and he is a pretty careful North Korea watcher, Bill Perry seems to think that this may actually bring negotiations back back on track in a way that they haven't been in several years. Let me just add a couple of points to that. Uh, and this is going to seem counterintuitive, but you know, the fact is there's something here that everyone is missing, and that is beneath the bluster beneath the lurching in all different directions that the Trump administration is doing, there is a channel opening of dialogue. And that channel, which has been 
you know, the administration had been trying to open since uh, February or so, resulted in the release, the recent release of uh, one American held prisoner there. This is Otto Warmbier, right. the American student who was who had been arrested for stealing a propaganda poster. Right, right. right. And there are three others there too. So I think there's going to be ongoing activity in that channel um, that in the near term will focus on getting these people released. Whether it goes anywhere beyond that, of course, is a big question because particularly because the young man who was released is in a coma and that's, of course, not good. But the channel is there. The North Koreans, I know for a fact, have been open to dialogue with the Trump administration since the end of last year and have been signaling that they do want to talk to the Trump administration. So the issue is whether this very tiny foothold that seems to be in place grows to something that addresses the bigger security issues. And I think Bill Perry recognizes all of this and sees that the combination of this foothold plus, you know, the, the what appears to be a greater emphasis on military steps, and I would say appears to be, uh, the combination of those two may be an effective approach. And the, Jeff, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, the South Korea, South Korea has a new president, right, as of May, Moon Jae-in, who is a little bit warmer towards relations with the uh, North Korea than his predecessor. Uh, how does that factor into the equation? Well, I, I think it's incredibly important. You know, I think one thing that I find really interesting about our discourse about North Korea and South Korea is we tend to act like, you know, they are two different countries and North Korea threatens South Korea. And so we sort of imagine that the South Koreans are pretty, pretty politically unified in the face of this threat. But of course, that's not at all the case. You know, South Korea is a very vibrant democracy and and it's progressive, this progressive side of its politics um, you know, has a a very different view. And and I think the way that I kind of sum it up is is by saying, you know, if you are a if you are a progressive in South Korea, you help democratize the country by protesting against a military regime. And so I think instead of seeing North Korea as another country that threatens South Korea, often progressives see uh, North Korea as just a military dictatorship that was like their own, that is sort of threatening, but is but is also in a way feeding off of the tension. Uh, and I think often progressive South Koreans are very skeptical about the role of the United States. And so when you have a progressive South Korean in the white in the uh, blue house, <laughs> you know, you do have this different dynamic where I think you've got a, a South Korean administration that is much more open to dialogue uh, and and much less less receptive to uh, U.S. assertions that uh, North Korea poses this particular threat, largely because they just they heard that a lot. I mean, they heard themselves be called communists in the 1980s. Uh, so it's a much tougher sell. You know, uh, there is a summit coming up at the end of June. President Moon is coming here. He's going to meet with President Trump. And so there's, of course, a lot of talk about what's going to happen there. And some of the media coverage, I think, has been really over the top that, you know, the progressive president from South Korea is going to bang heads with, you know, the, the militaristic President Trump. And in fact, there is much more common ground than people understand because, you know, once again, as I said, there is this strain in the Trump administration seeking some sort of engagement with North Korea. And certainly in the Moon administration, that is the case. But also, while they are progressives, they understand that their bread is buttered 
you know, ultimately by their alliance with the United States. And moreover, the people who are in the new Moon administration lived through a time period under a previous progressive president where there were tensions between the United States and South Korea. And so they want to try to avoid that. Well, the one big actor we're leaving out, and maybe the biggest, is China. You know, Trump, during when he was uh, on the campaign trail and as president-elect, was enormously hard on China, both on the economic side, uh, on trade. You know, since becoming president, he has dialed back. He has said that they are not a currency manipulator. He has not pushed as hard for trade. Uh, he had a summit with uh, President Xi Jinping at uh, Mar-a-Lago. So, you know, Corey, tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about how the China side of the equation factors in uh, and what levers there are to pull there. So my sense is that at least the last three administrations have been hoping against hope that they can persuade the Chinese government that we and they have a common interest uh, in managing North Korea so that it does not cross the nuclear threshold or does not uh, threaten South Korea and Japan or that it possesses nuclear weapons but doesn't brandish them to political advantage. And I think China, we and the Chinese have enough differences that that's actually been that has been an underperforming element of the last three administrations' strategy. The Trump administration seems to be leaning more that direction than previous ones, President Trump having suggested publicly that we would give the Chinese better terms of trade if they would help us manage the North Korean nuclear problem. I do think the Chinese government is increasingly concerned about North Korea's behavior. I do not think they are concerned enough that they are that they are really going to spend a whole bunch of their capital to ensure the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. This uh, is really great, impor- by the way. Oh, I stepped over you. I thought you were done. <laughs> I was just no, going to say ahead. this is great because normally these gentle notes of disapproval that I'm hearing were directed at me when I was your student. It's so fun to hear them directed <laughs> at someone else. <laughs> You know, on the Chinese angle, it's very interesting because, you know, after the summit, I think most people have noticed after the Xi-Trump summit, President Trump and others have been praising China. And so it's hard to tell exactly what happened at the summit. But I think President Xi probably, to some degree, pulled the wool over President Trump's eyes and said, oh, yeah, we're going to put more pressure on North Korea, but you also have to sort of pursue dialogue. And you know, the Chinese have stepped it up a little bit, but not a lot. And the administration, I guess until recently, has been praising the Chinese. But I think that is going to be a dead end. And so what what's going to happen is that the administration is going to find itself in a position where, you know, the Chinese aren't doing what we want them to do. Our threats of military force aren't really working. And the danger is that the administration is going to end up where the Obama administration ended up, which was a, you know, at a policy dead end in, in limbo where they couldn't really get anything going. And that gives the North Koreans a lot of running room to move forward with everything they want to do. For me, the most interesting policy question is um, why we are continuing to batter away along the lines of a policy that suggests that 
North Korea give up its nuclear weapons, right? Like we've got the negative message, which is if you use these weapons, we will destroy the North Korean leadership, right? So if regime survival is your objective, you cannot achieve it by nuclear weapons use. But what I think is is underexplored, I would defer to Joel and Jeff on this as greater experts on the subject than me, but my my sense is that what is underexplored is whether there is any way we can affirmatively uh, convince the North Koreans that we will not engage in efforts to overthrow the regime if they do not use their nuclear weapons. That is, can we... Uh, you know, given the promise we made Ukraine uh, and didn't carry out, and and given the outcomes that you know Saddam Hussein and uh, Muammar Gaddafi got, is there any way we can uh, persuade them that if they give up their nuclear weapons, we will leave the regime in place? I think that would be a useful negotiating tack, but I cannot find myself any means that would be persuasive to them. You know, this is this explains why, certainly in the past few years, but even to some degree before that, the North Koreans talk a lot about reaching a peace treaty because, as most people don't realize, the Korean War never really ended. We only have a temporary armistice ending the Korean War. And so the North Koreans have fixated on a peace treaty as a way of achieving more normal relations with the United States and South Korea, and basically as, you know, securing our acceptance of their regime. And I think that's the only thing that's really going to work because at this point, you know, pledges by U.S. government officials or, you know, useless pieces of paper are not going to convince the North Koreans to give up their nuclear weapons. I mean, look, there's not a good track record of states giving up nuclear weapons once they have that capacity. Unless I'm wrong, I mean, the Ukrainian... universe of one. It's a universe of one. That's right. It's South, uh, South Africa. Am I right? Yep. And the Ukrainians, I guess, gave them back to the Russians after the fall of the Soviet Union. But, you know, it, that doesn't look pretty good in the past, what, 30 years for states denuclearizing. Um, and, you know, the United States has had a policy, you know, call it whatever you want, but it really has been regime change. It's sort of this implacable foe of the Kim dynasty. Uh, and the rhetoric is so extreme, it's hard to imagine that there could be a situation in which, you know, the North Korean state sort of quietly and you know, opens up to the South, I, you know, and that that is also the Chinese sphere, right? They don't want it to break. They understand that the, you know, humanitarian and economic costs both across the Chinese border and in the region could be severe. They would be required from a humanitarian perspective to step in with all sorts of aid and troops and stuff to secure. So I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not the expert, but I'm not optimistic that North Korea walks away from this arsenal that Joel is talking about. Yeah, I think actually Libya is the real problematic case here because, you know, the Bush administration had a very good idea. I mean, I think in the wake of Iraq, but in, also in the wake of the successful effort to convince Gaddafi to give up uh, his WMD programs, which he more or less did, there was a, a real effort, uh, both publicly and privately, to try to go through Gaddafi to reach the North Koreans, basically to show that uh, if they gave up their nuclear weapons, we're the kind of country that keeps our side of that deal. And, you know, <laughs> it didn't work out didn't that way, It didn't work out right? so well for Gaddafi, did it? 
And and the North Koreans have been really straightforward in their propaganda saying like, hey, do you remember that time when? Um, and, and very direct in saying that Gaddafi's fall is a direct result of that denuclearization deal. So I, I, I think Corey has framed it exactly correctly, that you have to have this ability to convey this positive assurance. Um, but it's really hard to imagine uh, what a credible assurance in this regard looks like. Well, I, yeah, I mean, you know, no one's saying this is going to be easy. So if you were thinking about laying out a negotiating strategy and what it would be, you would essentially have two long-term objectives. And I think the North Koreans would buy onto this. You have two long-term objectives. One is a peace treaty. One is a nuclear-free Korean peninsula. You don't achieve them, you know, overnight. They are long-term objectives. And the issue then becomes... How do you move down the road in phases towards those objectives? <clears throat> you may never get there, but I would argue that at least moving down the road in those initial phases and maybe even beyond is better than where we are now. You mean the other side that we haven't talked about yet, it's not just nuclear missiles and you know artillery and tanks that are aimed at Seoul, South Korea. But the U.S. intelligence community just came out, I believe it was yesterday, uh, with some you know, affirmation that the massive WannaCry ransomware cyber attack was actually – looked like to be – it was directed from North Korea. And during the Obama administration, there was the Sony hack. So you not only have you know, counterfeiting and criminality and smuggling and all sorts of nefarious activities – from North Korea that they need to keep their economy rolling and to keep Kim Jong-un uh, up to his neck in Hennessy, uh, <laughs> cognac and all sorts of things. But, you know, when you see cyber attacks hit, what, 150 countries around the world, that's, that's significantly destabilizing. So, I mean, what do you do about that threat, Corey? Oh, that is uh, <laughs> You're sitting really out in Silicon question. Valley. Someone's got to know out there. So my uh, general belief about cyber is that the American government is never going to be good enough, fast enough, innovative enough to solve this problem, and that we are going to have to rebuild public-private partnerships, by which I mean to say in the post-Snowden era, it will be a challenge for American intelligence agencies to win the voluntary support of the progressive bastions that are the major tech companies. And so I, I don't see a good policy response emerging from this other than, you know, the, the nerds at NSA finding a way to, to build better and better shields for things that are critical. But it's, my sense is that it's going to be a losing argument, the best that we will be able to do is identify over time the North Korean sources of this and penalize them. I, I mean, I'd, be, I'd welcome a better answer from anybody else. Yeah, I think the cyber had to, you know, get people to update their Microsoft Office with the latest download. I, I know that that's pretty tough for me, so I'm not optimistic about that either. But, you know, it, it sort of brings us to the question of carrots and sticks, right? You know, if we assume that the ransomware attack was, you know, a way for the Korean government to, North Korean government, to fund itself in some way by infecting computers all over the world and getting payments here and payments there, 
I have to say, President Trump doesn't seem like a guy who wants to give a lot of uh, you know gratuitous foreign aid to nefarious uh, countries. He's all about sticks, it seems like. But Jeff, do we have to give a little carrots too? I mean, that's that's politically a third rail right now. Yeah, I mean, I I think that that's ultimately kind of where we are. Um, and I, you know, I get it. Nobody wants to have the uh, obese leader of a starving country over for a state dinner. Like the politics of it are terrible. Uh, and it's really hard to see any kind of inducement that doesn't end up looking like you're paying blackmail. So I get why nobody wants to do it. You know, at the same time, the reality is the North Koreans have leverage, right? It's like living next to some racketeers uh, and exactly they've got a bunch the right of hostages. Metaphor. Yeah. And and so, you know, sometimes small businesses pay the racketeers and like I like that is terrible public messaging. I think if I were if I were at the State Department, that is not how I would choose to say it. But even when I look at the Iran deal, which actually I think was a pretty good arrangement, you know, the U.S. still had to make concessions and it had to make concessions it didn't like. Um, so I think that's ultimately kind of our problem is that. You know, what North Korea wants is to be treated like it's a normal state. And that is like the hardest thing for us to give them because they're not normal. Well, if you're talking about tangible rewards for them as opposed to political and other rewards, then, you know, we're not in this alone. And so if someone was thinking about, well, how do we do this? The first thing you think is that the U.S. isn't going to provide them with assistance, financial assistance or other assistance. At the most, we might lift some sanctions. But the South Koreans are going to provide them because the new South Korean government, I think, is open to doing that. And so you have to think of it as a coalition of countries, the United States, South Korea, and maybe Japan, I don't know. And in that context, if you have a division of labor, then there are ways of providing tangible rewards for North Korea, tangible carrots to do the right thing. Everyone gets a Samsung phone, right? <laughs> Could be. I don't know, honestly. Uh, well, you know, look, that uh, that's a slightly more hopeful note. I'm surprised. I thought I was going to be cowering under the desk of this podcast studio by the <laughs> end of our talk, but... Uh, Shockingly, uh, I think there's a little bit of a consensus that there's a road forward here. And on that note, I think we'll leave it. I want to thank Joel, Jeff, and Corey for being on with us today. And ER Nerds, we'll see you all again real soon. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Ben Pauker, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much for joining us.